Das Leben kann hektisch sein. Warum nicht dem Alltag entfliehen und in die magische Welt von Evermerge eintauchen? Evermerge ist ein magisches Land, das mit jeder Entdeckung größer und besser wird. Werde ein Merge Master. Baue und sammle einzigartige Gegenstände oder verschönere deine eigene wundersame Welt. Im Land von Evermerge gibt es immer etwas zu tun. Evermerge. Jetzt kostenlos im App Store herunterladen. You are listening to the morning review. After 9.30 is, of course, the Naked Scientist. And every final Friday of the month, we have a Naked Scientist Kids Editions. And this week, we have the learners of Crystal House. Deputy Principal Carol Creel will help oversee the questions. Maybe first say hello to uh, Chris Smith. How are you doing, Chris? I'm in really good shape and I'm very excited. I love doing these programs on a Friday with, uh, with the schools once a month. And uh, I, I always really feel like I have to go and have a cold shower afterwards to cool my brain down <laughs> because these are the best questions that we get ever. So I'm very excited about this. And this is a school that specializes in STEM subjects. So there's going to be some smart kids in here with, with really, really inquisitive brains. Who is the first we have up? Good morning. My name is Anika and I'm like so excited to be speaking to an expert. So my question is, what is your opinion on how great the efficacy of the vaccine is versus natural immunization? If I had COVID-19, am I better protected than somebody who had any vaccine? Thank you. Chris? Wonderful question. So what we're doing is, is we're comparing how immune am I when I've been vaccinated compared with if I just go and catch coronavirus? And the answer is, it depends. Now, it depends on how old you are, and it depends on how severe your infection is. And if a person catches coronavirus and they're very, very ill, but they recover and get better, they tend to have really high levels of antibody, which are even higher than if they get vaccinated. If a person catches coronavirus and they're not very unwell, and most young people under the age of 50 or even 60 will fall into this category, then they have much lower levels of antibody, and those antibody levels are lower than if you were to get vaccinated. If you get vaccinated, you produce very high levels of antibody, but in both cases, the antibody levels don't stay high, and they start to fall away with time. And they're very good to start with, And that means right after you've been infected or right after you've been vaccinated, you have high enough levels of antibody that you can't be reinfected with coronavirus. But after a few months, the levels drop away. And after about six months, the level has gone from high enough to protect more than 90% of people down to about a half of people. And it's most pronounced in older people. So younger people tend to see their antibodies drop a bit more slowly than older people. And this is why, at the moment, many countries are advocating for vaccination and then booster doses six months after the first vaccination. And the booster doses, it turns out, produce really, really, really powerful immunity. We're very impressed with the response that the immune system produces to a booster dose. And it may be that we don't need any more booster doses in the future. Or we may be back to square one and have to give more booster doses again. So in summary, both infection and vaccination of all the different types of vaccine produce a good immune response. And initially it's a protective response, but over time it drops away 
And if you've been severely ill with coronavirus, you get a really powerful response to start with. If you're much more trivial infected, you get a weaker response. But in both cases, it does drop with time. Thanks so much for that, Anika. Daniel, who's next? Uh, we have Tamika. How are you? I'm fine in yourself. Good. How old and what grade are you in? I'm 13 years old and I'm in grade 7. Good morning, sir. I have noticed that the females in my family's menstrual cycle are in sync. So why do women's menstrual cycles sink in when loving together? Yep, this one is uh, quite commonly encountered where you find when a large number of people all live together, the girls and women among them will say that our menstrual cycles all tend to synchronise. Now there's a couple of possibilities here. One is that it's happening by chance and that's because the one time it does happen, everyone tends to notice. The other possibility is there really is something going on and there are signals being exchanged between people that in some way changes their menstrual cycle. The evidence that that might be happening comes from about 20 years ago, and there were two researchers, I think they were called uh, Stern and McClintock, from memory, uh, Kathleen Stern and Martha McClintock, and they published a paper in Nature, where it's one of the science journals, where they asked women who had very regular menstrual cycles to tape a piece of padding in their armpit for a while and they collected sweat samples from these women. They then cut the pads into small strips and they glued them under the noses of a second group of women with very regular menstrual cycles and asked them to wear these things under their noses for a period of time, having dipped them in alcohol so that they couldn't smell anything unpleasant but also couldn't tell control pads that hadn't been near anybody from pads that had really been on another woman and what they were measuring was whether there were changes in the menstrual cycles of the women who wore these pads under their noses and they found that depending upon whether the person who was wearing the pad that then was put under the nose of a second woman was in the first part or the latter part of her menstrual cycle they could bring forward or slow down the date of onset of menstruation and ovulation in the wearer of the pad under the nose and this suggested to them that there are signals and they are called pheromones which are released from a woman's body and they in some way can influence we're not sure how the menstrual cycle of other women and the evolutionary purpose of this might be if this turns out to to be the case that if you synchronise everybody together, it means that there will be many people who will fall pregnant at the same time, many people who will be rearing children at the same time, and therefore many people who could, if something happened to a mother, adopt a baby and breastfeed it, or run a sort of nursery and look after other people's babies while others went off to, to do things, and in that way there'll be an evolutionary advantage to menstrual synchronisation. I haven't seen this work repeated since it was published and it's all gone a bit quiet in the 20 years since so it may well be that actually it is just a chance thing and we notice it when it happens because it's happening and it's unrare and we're attaching significance to a coincidence. On the other hand, it could be a real thing for the reason I've outlined. Uh, once a month we have a very special uh, naked scientist. We invite kids from a Cape Town school to come online with us and pose the questions directly to Dr. Chris Smith. Thank you so much, Tamika. Daniel, who do we have next? 
Gerard, John. Hi, my, hi, my name is Gerard. And oh, Gerard. <laughs> and this question has been in my mind since I I didn't even know know we were go, I was going to be on Cape Talk. So here's my question. Since we as a species share lots of DNA, what are the possibilities of severe birth defects in children? So the question we're we're being invited to discuss is the prevalence of birth defects and why this might be related to our genetics. And the answer is that the reason we have birth defects, there can be a number of reasons. One of them isn't to do with genetics, it's just to do with how the baby develops inside mum. Because various things that mum does will have an influence on the development of the baby. The foods she eats, the drugs that she has to take, or sometimes does take, infections that she may succumb to. And all of those things can affect the environment for a developing baby and can cause the baby to develop wrongly under certain circumstances. And there have been some very uh, unfortunate examples that continue all the time of this happening. But also, because the ability of the body to form and develop follows a pattern, which is basically a recipe written into our genetic code, genetics also plays a very important role in the development of the human baby and therefore what we look like and about 80% of the genes in your body and you've got about 20,000 genes so 80% of those 20,000 genes are used to put together your face and so so-called craniofacial abnormalities are really very common uh, manifestations of underlying genetic problems and these obviously because they're genetic can be inherited and this means that if you have people who carry those genes in the population, there is a possibility that a child could develop that condition if they inherit those genes from their parents. And often if a person has a, a visible deformity, it doesn't mean that underneath the surface that they're unusual or abnormal. And there are many people who have problems with a certain part of their body or body proportion that nevertheless are in all other respects perfectly healthy. And so it's very important that we don't write people off as, well, you look a bit funny, so therefore you're in some way less good at doing things and less less of a contributor to the human race. These are unfortunate for some people, but many people turn them into a virtue too. Luckily, we understand a lot more about them, and they are very rare. The way in which we protect against this happening, or nature protects against this happening, is to avoid what we call inbreeding, because many of these traits are what are called recessive. You need to inherit copies of the genes from both parents, and so they tend to be much less common in people who marry people who are, and they have babies, with people who are as genetically different to them as possible. And nature has endowed us with various ways of making sure that happens. We, we tend to pick people who are genetically different to ourselves, by chance, we, we do that because there are various mechanisms that make that happen. And so that keeps us genetically safe and genetically diverse. I, mean, I have a follow-up to that, Chris. And you say that we, we somehow are attracted to people who are genetically different to us. But why do then psychologists say that we often are attracted to people who almost reflect us? And I've been told in many parts if we meet couples and then we would say oh you guys somewhat look alike or you look similar or you have the same features is, is what then is 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 that reasoning 
well, looking alike or having the same social outlook, the same social background and the same social interests is not the same as being genetically the same. And a really good evidence to, or a really good line of evidence to follow is to look at animals because the complicated thing about studying people is that we have a big brain and we live in a, in a very socially contrived, socially controlled environment. We, we very much influence what we do and the choices we make through our, our brains making choices that do sometimes trump nature. So the best way to look at this happening is to look at the animal world. And lots of studies have been done on mice, for example. And mice can smell whether they are genetically different from each other. And they do it because in mice, in their urine, they, they produce things called MUPs, which are uh, mouse urinary proteins. And in these proteins, they have particular odours, and the proteins are made from genes which sit alongside the genes that control the immune system. And so the, you inherit your immune system alongside the smell genes. And in that way, you can use the smell genes as a proxy for the makeup of your immune system. And if your immune system is different to my immune system, I know we're genetically different. So mice use this as a way of smelling, am I different to you? And people have done experiments where if you put a mouse in a cage and it's got a close relative and a mouse it's totally unrelated to in the same cage, then almost always the mice that are as genetically different to each other will mate compared to the ones that are closely related to each other. So animals do this. They're not constrained by social constructs and, and mm. deciding whether or not someone votes for the right party in government and therefore they're all right to, to marry. Uh, they don't, mice don't do that. Mice do what comes at the sort of root of their genetics. And we sort of do that, but we have some degree of social uh, overlay and that makes humans harder to study for the reason you've outlined. Excellent. I hope Gerard's question has been answered. Daniel, who's next? Um, Keisha, you are? Good morning, sir. My name Good is morning. Keisha. So AI blockchain technology and machine learning is rapidly advancing. I wanted to know if the human race is in danger of being dominated, controlled and governed by artificial intelligence. Wow. Stephen Hawking certainly thought that this was uh, an, a, what we call an existential risk and the, the risk of us being taken over and hijacked by machines was something that gave him great grave cause for concern. The, the bottom line is that humans are very inventive and we are continuously coming up with ways to make our lives better and easier. But in the process, we do have the potential to destroy ourselves and we have the ability to do things scientifically, which could have uh, very, very grave consequences for the human race. It's perfectly possible for us to invent things, whether that's a virus, whether it is a nuclear bomb or potentially machines that could seek us out and get rid of us. And it's very important that we, we don't do that. But even at a small scale, using these technologies does lead to enormous pressure on us and change us, sometimes not always for the better. For instance, let's look at social media. The way social media works is that there are algorithms which have been written which go and find people who agree with you and they introduce you to each other so you end up talking to people who share your views. Now that sounds like a fantastic idea and indeed it's a good way to make new friends, to 
associate with people who you're likely to get on with. But the problem is, if you're an extremist with extreme ideas and weird ideas, for example, that, uh, uh, that Elvis is still alive in Memphis, that there are aliens living on the moon, or that uh, Bill Gates put microchips in your coronavirus vaccine, all of which uh, people have said to me in the past, uh, or that the Earth is flat, then you will find a whole bunch of people who agree with you, giving you the opinion that you're right. And as a result, it acts as a way of fermenting and echoing and pushing ahead radical wrong ideas and that is very dangerous to the structure of society because where previously those sorts of bizarre voices and views would have been pushed to the margins they can become very loud voices and very influential voices for all the wrong reasons and this is a bad thing up against what could otherwise be a very good thing so we have the ability and this is a relatively trivial example to the answer but we have the ability to create things that aren't necessarily always good and so that yes i think there is the possibility that if we don't use these technologies as they come along very carefully and have uh, good thoughts about how they're going a good think before we implement them about what impacts they will have when they work at the scale of an entire world population then we, we could end up undermining society and we could end up with very serious consequences we've seen social media all over the the, the, the media in recent weeks because of uh, people beginning to to say these sorts of things and saying look this is being used to influence elections it's being used to change the way in which countries are run and this has enormous undue influence on on people and um you know, there, there are other consequences such as people uh, becoming depressed and upset because of what they read on these sorts of platforms. So as a result, one really does need to, to consider the, the power we have at our fingertips when we make these sorts of things before we just blindly implement them. Uh, Daniel Herden is a natural science teacher at uh, Crystal House out in Ottery. It's our special kids edition of Naked Scientist. We have a about time for three more questions, I kind of judge. Who's up next, Daniel? Darren? My name is Darren, and I have a three-part question. Three parts? Okay, let's, let's try and condense them, okay? But uh, Chris is listening. I want to know what is consciousness, and what happens when you sleep, and why do we dream? Very good questions, Chris. Right, well... Consciousness has been described by many scientists as the hard problem because no one knows what that is. No one has the foggiest idea how you take about 100 billion, that's 100 with nine noughts after it, nerve cells, and you connect each of them to between one and 5,000 other nerve cells and you put them into a big blancmange-like blob called a brain and somehow this creates the experience of being alive feeling touching sensing thinking thinking ahead listening enjoying contentment color sounds tastes the fact that when i'm looking at i'm looking at a microphone right now but i'm seeing that in front of me but actually all those signals are being decoded at the back of my head and what I'm seeing on the left side of me is being decoded at the back right side of my head. And what I'm seeing on the right side of me is being decoded on the back left and upside down too. Because the visual system flips everything back to front and upside down. But I see it the right way up. How on earth does that work? We have no idea. We're very good at studying what the brain looks like. We know all the different types of nerve cells. We know how they work pretty much in terms of that they are 
tiny entities which are connected to each other with long threads called axons that make uh, chemical connections to other nerve cells. And when they squirt out these chemicals, they can change the activity of individual or whole populations of nerve cells elsewhere in the brain. And we know the different shapes and sizes of those nerve cells. We know what the different parts of the brain are specialised in doing. We know, for example, there's a seeing area, there's a feeling area, there's a moving area, there's a hearing area, a touching area, there's a thinking ahead area. But how you put that whole lot together and produce the experience we call consciousness and whether my consciousness, when I see something and call it blue, is the experience that's happening in front of me the same thing that's happening to you when you see something and call it blue? We have no way of comparing what your blue is to my blue. So we don't even know if what we're calling consciousness is the same for me or you or even my dog. Dogs appear to be conscious are they conscious in the same way we are? We have no idea. In terms of your second question, which is sleeping, well, we don't know about that either. We just know it's very important because we spend about a third of our lives doing it. We also know that animals spend significant proportions of their time doing it too. And so that argues, from an evolutionary point of view, it must be very important. And if you're deprived from doing it and you can't sleep, then you become much less healthy. People become less mentally healthy. People go mad. If you deprive them of sleep, they really do go mad. And people have done experiments where they've stayed awake for extended periods of time, like days at a time, and they develop psychosis, schizophrenia-type symptoms, which thankfully do go away if you then get some sleep. But we don't know why you need to go to sleep for that not to happen. We also know that the brain cocoons itself away chemically from the body when you're awake, and when you go to sleep at night, it opens up various channels and flushes out all the bad stuff that's accumulated during the day. So that's perhaps one role of sleep, is to give your brain a refresh. Memories are also much better preserved and consolidated if you're allowed to sleep. Dreaming? Again, we have no idea. Probably for the same reason that we don't really understand what consciousness is. We know what happens when you dream. Your brain goes into a state of excitement and high electrical activity. It happens periodically through the night. And as the night goes on, it happens for longer periods of time. So your phases of dreaming get longer. And so the richest, most colourful, most enjoyable or frightening dreams tend to happen towards the end of the night and that's also when you're more likely to wake up and hence you're more likely to remember them so you remember the most detailed ones that are happening just before you wake up but again we don't actually know why that happens other than different parts of the brain turn on independently and just generate various activities perhaps it's a way of consolidating memory processing information perhaps it's a way of ditching information that's rubbish so that you remember the stuff you need to remember but this is just speculation very hard experiments to do ethically uh, and uh, without um, doing things that would be harmful to people so there's a limit to what we can learn but it must be important because we all do it and as far as we can tell we've always done it and so do other animals Darren Dugstem took all the time for our questions. You asked three questions in once. Unfortunately, Daniel, that's all the time we have. But thank you so much to the kids at Crystal House. I hope they enjoyed this experience. And thank you so much for, for organizing. Thank you, sir. Thank, thank you. you.